This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Adam Har, Leonard Satanjia, Carolyn Dionisio, and D.W., who all just signed up this month to support us on Patreon, and to Natalia Neuromancer, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. Natalia writes, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy means so much to me. Thanks for all the hard work that goes into making such an incredible podcast. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 413 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the animated 80s fantasy movies Heavy Metal, Fire and Ice, The Flight of Dragons, The Black Cauldron, and The Last Unicorn. And this will involve spoilers for all of those movies, so just be aware of that. And if you enjoy this topic, you might also want to check out our previous panels on 80s movies back in episodes 371, 378, and 406. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 14th appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future Anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's the former script supervisor for Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and is currently a staff writer at WWE's Friday Night Smackdown. So Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be back. The next up, we've got Tom Grenzer making his 12th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy and in books such as New Voices and Science Fiction. His nonfiction book, Think Like Google, is out now. And his short story, All Our Donkeys Were in Vain, appears in the new anthology, The Best of Galaxy's Edge, 2015 to 2017. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Matthew Kressel, also making his 12th appearance on the show. He's the author of the novel King of Shards, and his short story, The Last Novelist, or A Dead Lizard in the Yard, was nominated for the Nebula Award and was a finalist for the UG Foster Memorial Award. His new novel, Queen of Static, is available now on his Patreon page over at patreon.com slash mattkressel. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be back. Okay, so let's start off with Andrea and have you tell us if you had ever heard of any of these movies before going into this panel. Yes, uh, Heavy Metal, obviously, and The Last Unicorn. And I think I had heard of The Black Cauldron. I don't think I'd ever seen it. But I had seen Heavy Metal, had seen The Last Unicorn. Um, uh, the other two, never heard of them. Um, not surprised, actually, when I watched them. But so sorry. <laughs> so let's, not, let's not get ahead, too ahead of ourselves. Uh, okay. So what, um, um, what sort of uh, memories, if any, do you have of uh, Heavy Metal and The Last Unicorn? Um, well, heavy metal, my brother, uh, used to read the magazine. Um, so he got the magazine and, uh, you know, it's lots of Frank Frazetta, naked women in chain mail, bikinis. And, um, and so of course I wanted to look at all that cause you know, that was, for <laughs> I was a kid, I was like 10, 11, 12 and it was, it was off limits. Um, so I remember the magazine and then the movie. I, I honest to God, don't remember when I saw it. I know I'd seen it. I don't remember how or when. Um, and it was, a, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, seeing it again was a completely different experience. 
Let me and, just let me just say because I've never actually seen that magazine. I kind of heard of it for years. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I used to subscribe to it. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any older siblings, so I had no one to give it to me. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I just I was just reading up on it a little bit. It's it was originally there was a French magazine called Metal Herlant, which means howling metal, and then they sort of <laughs> did a you know an American or English language version. And certainly the, the, the sense I get is that it's kind of like the, the, the audience was like teenage boys who would get in trouble if they tried to buy a Playboy or something, yep. but could buy this. And it was sort of like the next best thing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. My <laughs> friends, I didn't subscribe to it, but my friends did. And we used to always look at it in the, uh, if you went in the bookstore, which was like one of the things you did when you were bored back then, mm-hmm. uh, we would just walk right back to the back of the store where they had that and check it out. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I want to just jump in and say, like, I've subscribed to it as an adult, uh, like about 10 years ago, I had a subscription for a while. And it's, and it's like, yeah, there's, there's, of course, like, so, so each issue is maybe like five or six mini graphic novels. And, um, a lot of them, like the stories aren't great. They don't make sense, but like maybe one of them will have like, or two of them will have like, you know, explicit nudity, but like some of the others are just like, gonzo science fiction and you know i feel like in some ways it's sort of like a a like sandbox for uh wannabe uh graphic novelists to just try stuff and see if it sticks so like people just submit like they do short stories to magazines they'll submit their graphic novel to uh heavy metal and and you know so so not everything like i i want to just go out there and say like for for graphic artists who are listening be like hey it's not all porn like it's yeah there's <laughs> there's like uh, you know they have a history there like well we need at least two breasts in every issue you know i i don't know what what their you know <laughs> quota is on that but i you know it's well, not it's not all that well yeah I, I will say that the sense i get from just hearing just like reading up on it and listening to people talk about it is that it is a place where artists go to draw what they really have always wanted to draw which in many cases breasts that they haven't been allowed to. <laughs> yeah, but, well, you can you do know. that now on like DB yeah. Art or something. Yeah. Matthew, do you read Playboy for the articles? <laughs> <laughs> Only for the fiction. <laughs> yeah. Well, I gotta say, it's got some of my favorite fiction ever came out of right. Playboy. All the most of Robert Sheckley came out of there. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a history connecting um, heavy metal to Blade Runner. So mm-hmm. heavy metal was one of the first places that the artist Mobius appeared, Jean Girard. And he, Jean Girard teamed up with Jodorowsky, uh, who did the famous, like, Dune attempt, uh, to create something called the Inkle, which I think we mentioned in our, um, Eon Flux uh, yeah, episode. Yeah. But, but the Inkle, like, a lot of that art was the inspiration when Ridley Scott was doing Blade Runner. He was like, oh, I want it to look like the Inkle that I saw mm. in, in heavy metal. So it's like, there's, it's kind of a cool connection there. Yeah, because I mean, I'm definitely not a, by any means an expert on animated movies. And so it was amazing how many connections I never knew about doing research for all this stuff that maybe we can get into between Blade Runner and all these kind of stuff. Um, but before that, let's just get, um, Sumat, since we're talking to you, do you have what, how many of these movies did you ever heard of before, uh, this panel? Um, definitely saw Heavy Metal, uh, Last Unicorn. I feel like I have seen, but I, when I watched it, I think I watched it for the first time about 20 years ago. And I mean, I watched it 20 years ago and I was like, I don't remember this. So maybe I hadn't seen it. So, and the black cauldron, I feel like when I was a kid, that's, it was everywhere. It was like all, all I heard everywhere was, Oh, the black cauldron, the black cauldron, but sitting down and watching it for this podcast, 
I don't remember ever seeing it. So it could just be that my memory's terrible and I had forgotten it. <laughs> um, but I, I have a very explicit memory of, um, of seeing heavy metal on, it was probably HBO at the time. And so I'm watching it. Like I just turn it on one night and it's this animated thing. And it has this very sort of, you know, um, I want to say like familiar animation style that I'd seen in other, you know, animated shows for children. Like I was a huge GI Joe watcher and Voltron, although I don't know if Voltron was on at the time. So like this thing comes on like, Oh, cool. And then within five minutes, like, you know, this astronaut dies horribly mm. while his daughter watches. And I remember being like, <gasps> what the hell am I watching? And then like the next scene is like the taxi driver just evaporating the passenger in the back seat. And then, you know, there's a scene where like one of the guys is like, he's naked. He gets, it's uh, it's actually uh, John Candy, but he gets teleported <laughs> to the other world and he becomes this big buff guy. Okay, wait, wait. So now we're not into our discussion of heavy metal yet. <laughs> okay, we're not. All right. Well, all I'm saying is that, um, Basically, I realized that, like, like Andrea, I was in dangerous territory. And, um, it wasn't the magazine, it was the movie. And it kind of freaked me out when I first saw it, cause I wasn't, I wasn't expecting a, a, a cartoon to be that violent. But, um, it was definitely like, I remembered it ever since. But the others, I, I probably have heard of Fire and Ice. Definitely the logo. Like, I saw that logo, I'm like, oh yeah, of course. Um, but I don't think I had ever seen it before this. Yeah, so I'll say, I mean, I, um, I watched the last, I've probably seen The Last Unicorn, who even knows, 50 times. I could quote the whole movie from memory. <laughs> I saw wow. The Black Cauldron when it was in theaters, um, but I haven't watched, I hadn't watched it since. I, I just rewatched it. Um, I, the only, like, I'd, I'd seen maybe a little bit of Fire and Ice and Heavy Metal. I, I definitely saw the part where the, um, the sword w- woman warrior rides around on the bird. <laughs> I, I, I saw, like, part of that on TV one time. But I don't think I had seen the rest of it, and I'd never heard of the Flight of Dragons before. Um, so, how about Tom? Where do you? How much experience did you have with these things? Same as Matthew, almost exactly. Uh, you know, heavy metal. I had seen over and over again, over and over and over again, and absolutely loved it when I was a kid. And watched it with my friends. You know, watched it at parties and stuff. It would just be gone, kind of in the background. And then uh, um, Black Cauldron never saw, but there was a really heavy ad campaign. I think where it would. Just be like you'd be watching TV and it would be like Disney's The Black Cauldron and they would like yeah you know go. Well, on it was on the most it. expensive animated movie ever mm-hmm. made when it came out, so it's not wow. surprising there was a big promo campaign for it. Yeah, so I I fully had that. Like when I saw the title of it, I was like, oh yeah, I know that movie. And then when I watched it, I was like, oh no, I never saw this movie. <laughs> and then and then uh, the other yeah the other ones I just never heard of at all uh, ever before. So. All right, so now we're into the, we're discussing heavy metal. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, 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 Tom, when you uh, you say you would watch it at parties, I'm assuming these were stoner parties, or <laughs> you know, uh, well, no, they weren't. For one thing, I mean, I mean, there wasn't really. I don't think there was such thing as a stoner when I was a kid. There were like the bad kids who would like drink and smoke pot, and uh, and then there were like the clean kids who wouldn't smoke any pot but would drink a little bit. But I think, you know, the movie came out in 1981, which I did not realize. So I would have been, you know, I mean, before junior high even, I think, uh, cause I graduated in 87. So, but no, I, I watched it when it, I watched it when VCRs became a thing and everybody had a VCR and then people would rent it and then it would be on HBO, like Matthew said. And so it was more when I was like in high school and I, I would watch it then. 
But um, yeah, was thoroughly blown away by it. Absolutely loved the Dar story with John Candy. Like that was mm-hmm. absolutely my favorite one. Um, the other ones I thought were cool. Like the concepts were cool. Like I was like, oh, such a cool concept. And then, you know, going back and watching them again wasn't really, just was kind of like, oh, okay, not really a great story, but still a cool concept. And then except for the kind of the, as it gets toward the end, it gets more kind of, they were just kind of like, okay, we need some extra time here. We'll, we'll throw this story into and put a lot of crazy visuals with it. Um, yeah. Well, dinner. let me, ex- let me explain. So, yeah. So, so there, there's this frame story that, uh, Matt mentioned where there's this, uh, astronaut kind of like, like, in a spacesuit, like gets in a car and like falls and, you know, through the atmosphere and lands on earth and goes home to his daughter with some, uh, glowing green orb that he's acquired in space, presumably somewhere. And it kills him. And then it sort of like terrifies her and like psychically transmits, uh, images into her mind. And so then the, the film is sort of composed of these stories, which are like supposedly the stories that the glowing green orb is telling to the, to the little girl. And they're all stories, as I understand it, maybe with one or two exceptions that were originally appeared in the magazine and were kind of adapted right. for animation. Um, and so, right. and, I, and I would sum that up even quicker by saying it's an anthology of unrelated science fiction and fantasy stories loosely connected by a mysterious, levitating, orb-like pair of breasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let, yeah, let me just describe the, uh, the 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 stories, right? So there's a cab driver picks up a hot chick with huge breasts. There's like a nerdy kid who gets transported. He gets transported to an alien world. It's very like John Carter of Mars styles style where he interacts with lots of chicks with big breasts. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, uh, uh, <laughs> a warrior I woman. A here. Yeah, there's a, I a theme. There's a warrior woman who like uh, <laughs> spends half the uh, episode getting dressed very, very slowly who has huge breasts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, like, I mean, it's the same pair of breasts in every every single <laughs> yeah, one. Like, that's the artist just like used. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah, let me finish. So there's these aliens who abduct a secretary with huge breasts, um, and then there's like a cap. Then there's a space captain who's put on trial, and like some zombies uh, aboard a B seventeen bomber in World War Two. Were there breasts in that? There were not breasts no, in that. I don't no. think not in those the World War Two one. Two, I'm not sure if there were. And not the captain, uh, the captain on trial one. Okay, yeah. so two without breasts. But so you're well, we're, we're picking up, but you may be picking up on a little bit of a theme here. So, yes. um, so, so Andrea, had you ever? Mm-hmm. You, you said you had seen heavy metal before. Right? Uh, yeah, I know I'd seen it, or at least parts of it. I don't remember how. I you, Matt said uh, HBO, and that's probably where I saw it. Um, I didn't love it at the time. I was just kind of like, eh. You know, I, I, I like a nice big narrative arc, wasn't into anthologies and also, you know, boobies. Um, but, <laughs> but watching it again, I gotta say, I thought it was fantastic. Um, I, it's great animation. It's great writing. It's got a great cast. It's, it's out of Canada. So it's got the whole cast of SCTV in it practically doing the voices. Um, yeah. It's funny, it's smart, you know, aside from the boobies, um, you know, the, the last one, the Tarna one, which is the, the woman who dresses slowly and rides a bird, um, is very like proto Eon Flux. Um, yeah. there's, uh, you know, the two women, the cab driver woman, and I think one other woman. I swear to God, it's the same animation as like, uh, I don't know if I, uh, this is aging, I'm going to 
tell you exactly how old I am, but reading the comics when I was a kid, the Blondie comics, it's exactly what she looks like. Oh, yeah. There's like yeah. Betty Boop, the big eyes, the red lips, the hair. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, animation references, especially because that was done in the, like the 70s and 80s of previous animation and comics uh, that you you won't get unless you're like that old. <laughs> well, um, and I just thought it was smart and funny, well-written you know, aside from the boobies part. Well, that's interesting because, you know, I, I was sort of underwhelmed by this. And it's interesting you really? mentioned Eon Flux because I love, you know, I've, as I said before, I love Eon Flux. And I sort of felt like this was, um, I really liked the visual aesthetic and the um, the attitude. And I actually liked the anthology format, but I just felt like, like the stories were kind of weak. Like at the end of each one, I was kind of like, oh, all right, whatever. Um, and I really felt like they should have had fewer stories and had the more, had the characters and the plots be more developed. Well, um, you know what? I, I think it might have had to do with the fact that I didn't have great expectations going into it because I don't remember loving it when I first saw it. So the fact that it was a whole lot more interesting as an adult than it was when I was a teenager, um, maybe that's probably why I'm giving it uh, higher marks. But I started it first. I watched it first because I was like, oh, I'm going to hate this. I'll just get it out of the way. And then I ended up really liking it. See, Matt, let's go back to you. So what, 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 what pick up on how, how much do you like heavy metal? Uh, I like it. I don't, I don't love it. It's not a movie that I would be like, oh, I need to rewatch that to pick up all the nuances. I mean, there's some, there's some great humor in it. Like, you know, where the, the, uh, you know, woman, the, the abducted secretary, Who's, by the way, the only woman in the in the room of like you know the chief executive oh, yes. in, in the in the war room in the Pentagon. The only woman I, is yeah. the secretary, right? Yep. So so she gets abducted, <laughs> and then you know she hangs out with this uh, robot who I think is John Candy. John Candy. Right? Yep. Yep. And they of course sleep together, and then she you know she goes you know I can't marry you. Mixed marriages never work. And I, was just, I was like I love that, and then she's like all right I will marry you, but it needs to be a Jewish wedding. Yeah. It's like that's just I mean like so there were there were some moments of humor yeah. in it that really made me laugh out loud. Yeah. Um. Definitely the art art style. I think um. I, I think it was uh the first one and the, and the last one. The last one more than any reminded me of um. The Jean Girard, like uh, the Mobius, the Inkle style. Yeah. Like, well, apparently, very... wait, can I find it? Apparently, there was um, something that Mobius did called Arzac that mm -hmm. they wanted to adapt and they couldn't get the rights to it. So they did kind of like an Arzac ripoff, but it was like very consciously supposed to look like Mobius. Yeah, like the way the hats that they're wearing and the clothing. Like if you you if you read the Inkle, you're like, oh, that yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so like I enjoyed that aspect of it. I think. Um, Probably my favorite one. Uh, I forget the character's name, but the John Candy boy, where he gets, yeah, you know, Den, Den, yeah, oh, Den. That's yeah. right, Den. Yeah. yeah. So where he gets like, uh, you know, teleported through space into that, like, you know, Robert E. Howard kind of Clark Ashton Smith um, fantasy world, which I, I, I had a lot of fun with that. I mean, it was just really campy and silly, but it was also, I thought, in a, in a way, it was, it was um, very inventive um in kind of the way that i liked how flash gordon just uh created uh you know we, we talked about the movie but it just created this like really weird alien landscape um so that that part of it worked for me um i think my least favorite one was actually the zombies on the bomber um but yeah it was it was it was fun i i think that the uh episode with the 80s cab driver 
like it's it's eighties cab driver, it's supposed to be twenty <laughs> yeah, yeah, one, yeah. one or something. And I'm just like, man, that's eleven years from now. That's crazy. Didn't it remind uh, you of Fifth Element? Yes. Oh, yeah. In yeah, fact, was... his his um his apartment, his uh yeah. bathroom. His bathroom was actually right out of Blade Runner. I'm like, I wonder if you know, they, they just I, I think they came out the same year, so I don't know if you know the the art directors were talking to each other, but um, yeah, definitely Fifth Element. Um, but it was just like his his whole attitude, you know, like yeah, I'm just another New Yorker driving a cab. And, uh, <laughs> but it was like, you know, in the future, I, I liked it. I, I liked his his attitude, but uh, yeah, I mean, these it didn't age well, that's for sure. Um, I don't know. It, it was it was fun to watch, but I, I don't have any great desire to watch it again. Yeah, it's yeah, fun. Andrea, they. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrea, that I have a group of friends who was really into movies when I used to live in Maine, and even up into their, you know, thirties and forties, we would talk about movies together and go see movies together. And uh, all of them, when the Fifth Element came out, hated it because they said it was just a ripoff of the first story in Heavy Metal. <laughs> which, which I, which I was like, ah, come on, there's a lot more there. It's kind of like the same aesthetic, but it's not like they ripped off the whole movie. Like the yeah, movie has no. got its own thing going on, but they, but they too to a person were like no way it is it, they just ripped it off it stinks but it's just um, the cab driver in in a dystopian future new york right. i i mean right. that's it well who gets right. the red haired who gets the redhead girl yeah and there's well, like the flying true. cars and stuff yeah that's true cars. that's true but um but no i i absolutely loved this when i was younger i agree about the den story with john candy i think what makes that so good is that they have him be like this you know prepubescent or just on the cusp of pubescence boy and he keeps coming in and interjecting all these things like when he sees the woman and she's got you know this really voluptuous naked body he's like first thing he says is she had the most beautiful eyes (laughs) just like lines like that that coming out one after the other just busted me up and make that also make that character so endearing you just it, it would be different if he was just like this invincible like giant guy but he but no he's this young boy who is who's that's who's watching it so you're like oh yeah that's exactly what i would say that's so funny um back then i think one of the things that makes it not age well is i don't think the audio comes across anymore something happened to it maybe or just maybe it was just the way i watched it off my phone but um when i was a kid it was all it was almost all about the music or or at mm-hmm. least half of it was about the music i mean these were all Big yeah. time hit songs Huge. that we loved yeah. back then, that everybody loved. It were really popular songs, yep. and and to see it played out like they, and the sound on the VHS tape. I took an audio engineering class in college, and uh, VHS tape has really good audio because it's like I don't know, it's super thick tape. It's got a lot of bandwidth for audio, and I feel like that gets lost even in digital, which ought to be good. But back then, you know, on a VHS with a decent speaker system hooked up to it, you'd be watching it in your living room, and the and the sound of these musical pieces would just fill the room and yeah. that was a big part of it it was like you know i'm glad there's a story there and you're you guys made good points like the stories aren't really super strong but back then that was only part of it and um and just another point about the stories it, this really reminds me a lot of what was it called love death and robots or sex death and robots that we reviewed yeah, recently. yeah love death and robots it reminded me a lot of that in that the stories are kind of truncated. Like, Matthew, you pointed out the Bomber one was your least favorite. I remember loving that as a kid. And as an adult, I'm like, okay, well, there's not really much of a story. It's just kind of like this yeah. creepy thing happens and there's a twist ending. 
Um, or, well, or actually, let me let me let me say, Tom. I mean, I I read. I can't remember now all who was involved, but they they were trying to reboot Heavy Metal, and they, after a while, there there was something with the rights or something, and so they just did Love, Death, and Robots instead. But, oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, well, that, now it all comes clear. Okay, because it's just like really cool, shocking stories, and they don't really care so much if it is a story, so much as it's something cool that they can do visually in a good way. That makes um, a lot of sense, actually. I didn't even connect the two. Makes yeah. total sense. Makes total sense. So I would still recommend this, but uh, less than I would have when I was younger. Like, I remembered it being just, like, flawless, and now I'm just kind of like, oh, yeah, a lot of these are... You know, so so, but I still would rec. I still would say, you know, definitely go and watch it. Yeah, I want to. We need to move on to the next movie, but I, I just want to. One one thing I want to mention is that apparently, you know, we mentioned the it, the opening. There's the uh, a car coming through the atmosphere with the astronaut mm-hmm. in it, and apparently that made a big impression on Elon Musk. I was and, just gonna say, it looks like right. the, uh, the Tesla. They shot exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's kind of. It they- also reminded me of um, MTV. Yeah. Like visuals yeah. from MT- early MTV. Yeah, I think yeah, it seems like it must have been some of the same artists. Um all right, cool. So let's move on to Fire and Ice 1983. Um so this is uh Ralph Bakshi is the director who's best known for doing the animated Lord of the Rings from 1978 and whose uh debut feature film Fritz the Cat was the first animated feature film to oh. receive an X rating. Mm-hmm. And uh, is still uh, apparently the most successful independent animated feature film of all time. Wow. And so he was, because they used the X rating as a marketing thing and got lots of people to go see it. Um, <laughs> but so he was friends with Frank Frazetta and wanted to do basically like take Frank Frazetta's paintings and turn them into an animated movie. And so that's kind of what Fire and Ice is. Uh, so yeah, Frank Frazetta, very like, you know, bodybuilder swordsmen and voluptuous women fighting exotic monsters on a vibrantly colored alien worlds and stuff like that. So that's, that's all what this is. Um, so, uh, so Andrea, what'd you think of fire and ice? Um, me, was this thing hellaciously racist? Uh, no, yeah, I had that same thought early on. Yeah. Basically my entire reaction to it was Jesus fucking Christ. I, I, um, yeah, it made me actively angry at, you know, the, the bad guys were all dark skinned and the good guy is a blonde haired, blue eyed guy. And, um, you know, all the women are just basically porn stars. There's this one scene where you meet the princess right at the beginning where she's in her room and she lies back on a seat and puts her legs up in the air. And it's like, that's, that's a, that's a stripper move. Like if you go into a strip club, that's what they do. Um, it was like, Everything about it was so awful. I, I've never hated anything so much in my life. I, I just, I loathed it. Um, yeah. So there you go. Well, you loathed know, I'll, I'll grant you there's, it's definitely problematic. Not, not just with the, um, they're called the subhumans. The, yes, uh, exactly. The, the sort of orc like monsters, but also the, uh, the, the villain Necron is kind of like, Oh, ambiguously gay. Yeah. Like <laughs> not, not into women so much. Yes. It seems. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, the princess Tigra, like all of her frames of animation seem to have been constructed by tracing, uh, porn magazines. Well, um, actually I was just reading about it. It's, it's rotoscoped. It's oh, not. Well, yeah. Well, obviously. Yeah. 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 
So it's it's live action. I'm just saying in terms of the poses that she's in, no matter whether she's running from monsters or fighting or whatever, it's always some Mm -hmm. like porn kind of pose. Yeah, it's stripper stripper porn. It's it was. uh, How do you guys know this? What the rotoscope or the? No, how do you how do you know what strippers do? (laughs) I'm just curious. I've seen movies. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Research. You've never been to a you never been to a strip club. I'm just joking. I'm. All right, but but um, I'll say I was not expecting to like this at all. I, I don't like the rotoscoped animation in general. I think it looks kind of like fake, and the characters don't seem to be really fit into the environment and stuff like that. But I actually thought this was kind of awesome. Uh, I ended really? up having a good time watching it. Um, so um, I don't know, but how about um, Matt? What'd you think of Fire and Ice? Um, I had the same reaction uh, as Andrea when the when the you know the evil hordes come in and they're all dark skinned. I'm like, wait a minute, what 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 are, what's happening here? Um, I, I thought I, the, the story to me was just really boring. Um, it, it was just one battle scene after another. But with that being said, I I really loved the the setting in this, and I I thought the matte paintings in the background were fantastic. And something about the rotoscope style, although it was a little retro, there was something natural about it, I guess because they were real actors, um, that I just found engrossing. So, I mean, it wasn't obviously the naked bodies or anything, uh, but, uh, no, it was just, it was, it was just, um, like, the world that they created, you know, he's just like walking through the woods and there's like a monster. I felt like I was in a D and D world, which I think is what they really were trying to capture. And I, I thought they, the world did that effectively. Um, whether or not, the, like the, I thought the story definitely didn't, didn't See, work. I, I was my, yeah. my, my issue with so many of these things is that the dialogue is just so awful. And yeah, so was, I actually felt that this was like it worked better because the dialogue is fairly minimal and it's pretty much just a bunch of action scenes. And I would much rather watch that in this kind of movie than sort of sit through these interminable, terrible dialogue scenes. Um, but let's get let's get Tom in here. Tom, what did you think of Fire and Ice? Well, first of all, I didn't realize Fritz the Cat was so successful. That was a big time, uh, very I, it was one of those movies that my friends would get together and watch and be like, check this out. It's an X-rated car- cartoon. And we'd watch it and be like, ah, oh, that's hilarious. The cat's doing all these rude things. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Matthew, I feel like you kind of, you kind of were trending toward like a Kevin Nealon, uh, as a movie critic. Remember, remember he did that on Saturday Night Live where he'd be like, you know, I started watching this. I wasn't interested. Then suddenly I started to get a little interested when he started, you know, <laughs> his like, yeah. his, uh, his kind of like porn reviewer type thing. I got then, more interested, then I was very interested, and then suddenly I lost interest. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys remember that, but that was classic. But, uh, kind of, I kind of think you could apply that to, I would love to see his review of any of these movies because they all have to, it seems like the, the criteria for making a 1980s, uh, animated fantasy movie is you've got to have large breasts in it somewhere, unless it's Disney and then it didn't happen. But no, even in but, the uh, Disney, I mean, we'll get to that later, but like, even the like children's cartoons in this involved characters being smushed between giant breasts. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right. But, we'll, 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 but we'll get to that. But sorry, sorry, Tom, go ahead. Okay. I must have, I must have blocked that out or something, but I, I'm sure. <laughs> but anyway, so I thought number one, um, yeah, this definitely has the whole like thews and, you know, T H E W S instead of muscles, like pendulous breasts, like the whole 
Piers Anthony kind of aesthetic where you can imagine, I don't know if you, you guys have read The Stand by Stephen King, but the Harold Lauder character, the guy who's like starts out as the overweight nerd and then turns into the like scary, um, kind of sub villain. Uh, that character, you can picture him at the beginning just loving this, like being like, this is my favorite movie ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I thought it had a kind of a cool story. I thought the art was really amazing and it kind of wouldn't play to today's audiences kind of way. I, I saw in the trivia in IMDb that they had a thousand plus background paintings done for this movie. Wow. Um, so I thought, you know, ba- back then they couldn't do the CGI stuff that, so they had to hire like painters to do like, yeah. A lot wait, of wait, work. Tom, let me, did you know? So one of the background painters was Thomas Kincaid on this movie. Oh, really? So yeah. if you, if you don't know, he's this painter, he's like, I think he's the most like best selling painter of all time, but he paints these sort of like, like cottages, like at twilight with lots of flowers and a river. They're all kind of like the same. It, it just like blows my mind that he, I guess they needed someone who could paint a lot of paintings really, really fast. Yeah, I saw that in the trivia as well. And he, and he, um, apparently he's got like, I don't know anything about him, but apparently he's like in the art world. He's really looked down on. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I guess he's fast. So they were like, Oh, this guy's great. <laughs> so I thought the art, you know, back then the art was absolutely amazing. The rotoscoping was a, was the best way to do this. Um, I, I thought some of the story was pretty cool. Actually, I, I, I agree about the racism thing, but I thought the shirtless pigtail Batman character was really mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> uh, I, I, I really liked him. I thought the villain was genuinely menacing. Like I was, if you were ever around that guy, he's just like, he reminds me of the guy, the kid in the Twilight Zone movie who was like all powerful, but like completely, yeah, yeah. completely had no empathy at all for other people. And he just like would just, you know, if you said the wrong thing around him, he'd be like, all right, I'm going to take away your mouth or I'm, you know, I'll just kill you. Cause yeah. instantly Send you to I, the cornfield. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought that was, I thought he was, the villain in this was genuinely menacing. But overall, like the, my boredometer rating for this was like three out of 10. Like, I think you, it, it was kind of, the whole thing overall was kind of boring to me, but, um, you would have to appreciate the 80s artwork without computer assisted animation and, and be into that kind of story to, to enjoy it. And if you're into that kind of thing, then I think you would enjoy this. I agree, Tom, about some of the like stuff being, disturbing like i thought i thought a lot of like the there's the sort of like tentacled monster under the lake there's the like witch who kind of comes back to life as a skeleton The witch was cool like she was so creepy and scary i was like that was my favorite part where she like he walks by and she just climbs up like she's all she's just bones and sinew and she's like hello (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and i like the the guy i don't think they ever say his name in the movie but it's dark wolf is the kind of batman guy like all his all his fight scenes, I thought were really like cool. I, I really, you know, I was into that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so um. But yeah. So I agree with that. So how about uh, Andrea? Any um, any other thoughts on this movie? Yes. Why is everybody naked? Even in the ice world, <laughs> they're all naked and running around <laughs> in an ice world naked. Um, and nobody's cold. Nobody's cold. Nobody looks even remotely cold. Um. Why, why at one point does the princess try to cut a chain with a knife? Does she not know how metal works? Why is she an idiot? Um, that redheaded witch is insane. I couldn't understand what she was saying. Um, why, if they had those pterodactyl flying things, why didn't he send them after the daughter in the first place? Like they send out these pterodactyls, like he just kidnapped your daughter. Why don't you use the pterodactyls? That's like dumbest. Oh my god, it was dumb. Um, no, they did. No, he did. He sends he sends out the pterodactyls to look for the daughter 
Oh, he's, well, I missed that, but, he's, but how did they, they not never, find her? They would never get through. They didn't do it sooner because he said, oh, they'll never get through. And he's like, well, all right, we, if just one of us gets through, we can do it. They did kind of explain that. Well, I thought it was dumb. <laughs> um, I thought everybody was dumb. Um, no, the, the, I just sorry. sorry I, the, the dumb thing, the dumb thing with the pterodactyls is like they're in like um, the hero Lorne and um, Dark Wolf are in Necron's palace, and for some reason they go all the way back to the good guy castle, and he's like, and they're like, we're gonna go rescue your daughter. He's like, okay, fine, I'll send my pterodactyl guys with you, and then they all get killed. All, like yeah. every single pterodactyl guy gets killed, and they end up just with the two of them back where they started. So they could have just like not done any of that, and it would have been exactly the same situation. Just everything that was so bad. Like that's the worst offense, uh, more offense <laughs> oh, I've ever fair. seen. Like you're yeah. real. No wonder you're about to lose your kingdom. You're an idiot. Yeah. Um, when the when the ice meets the lava, shouldn't there be a giant explosion? Like I'm sorry, I'm thinking science here, but like. There should have been a big old boom, and there wasn't. I don't know. I, I was so distracted by everything I hated about this movie that uh, that's what I was thinking about, about was like, should there be an explosion? I, I just didn't care. I hated it with a passion. It was it was porny. I hated the characters. <laughs> like, I loathed this thing. Sorry, that, that's it. That's all I got to say about this. All right, all right. How about Matt? Did, did, any, did anyone find, like, the similarities interesting between this and you know um a song of ice and fire like oh you know, for Game sure of thrones like yeah. with the with the approaching wall from the north i mean yeah wall of yeah. ice did um did martin ever mention this like was he ever asked was there does this influence his, his work i, in I couldn't find any any time he mentioned this he did mention ralph bakshi's lord of the rings movie mm-hmm um, so I'm I'm pretty certain. I mean, it's not like magic fire versus magic ice in a fantasy setting could only have come from this movie. But yeah. just given like Martin's age and kind of like the stuff he's into and things like this, I, I would not totally be at all surprised if uh, he's. Yeah, it might have even influenced him, uh, you know, subconsciously. I thought it was funny at the beginning. Um, and this wasn't even like part of the movie or anything, but like Ralph Bakshi's credits. It's like every other name is his like Ralph yeah Bunch, Ralph Bunch, Ralph <laughs> you know what yeah. speaking of credits there was a credit at the end that said costumes designed by Frank Frazetta I'm like what it was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen what costumes <laughs> <laughs> they're all wearing loincloths the, I guess for the actors that they did the rotoscoping I guess I guess but like they're not wearing anything he's like for this actor I'm thinking loincloth loincloth yeah maybe maybe a rope or something brilliant yeah, Frank yeah <laughs> Um, wait, let me read some of the trivia. So, um, so apparently, um, so Ralph Bakshi after, um, actually I didn't write it down. Oh no, it must've been around the same time. So apparently he was offered to do an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And he didn't want to do it, but he said, why don't you ask my friend Ridley Scott if he wants to do it? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so just think, Matt, you and, could have had a Ralph, ba- Ralph Bakshi's uh, version instead. I think, I think, thank I think God. I'm happy with the Scott version, actually. <laughs> yes, yeah. Thank God that happened. Um, and apparently also Robert Rodriguez was trying to remake, announced in like 2010 maybe originally. It was, it's been a while, but he, he was going to remake um, Fire and Ice. But I don't think that that's really happening anymore, but... There's hope, Andrea. There's hope that they could do a remake of it. Less naked women. Um, <laughs> oh, well. Less Robert less Rodriguez? racism. Yeah. Less... <laughs> so, have you seen much of Robert Rodriguez stuff? There probably wouldn't be less naked women. <laughs> uh, just at least at least put them in. Cl- I, I don't know. It just. Oh, I God. Mean, did you see Machete? Was it Machete? Where I did not. 
what's the what's the movie where he has the he has Rose McGowan with uh she gets her leg oh. amputated and gets a machine gun put in place of it and then she she's a stripper so she does stripper <laughs> moves and like shoots people when she like culminates the move yeah, wow. I saw that. I mean, it was it's, it was like was it Grindhouse or it was like it was like Grindhouse. Two movies Grindhouse. Yeah. It was Grindhouse. Yeah, yeah. So probably not less naked women, but go ahead. Yeah. So, um, any final thoughts on Fire and Ice before we move on? Nope. No, we're we're moving on. <laughs> that was Andrew. Air raid. Getting, what, getting what? Out of here. <laughs> fuck this shit <laughs> um so um what's well, funny um matt that you mentioned um george r, r. martin because like yeah watching a lot of these movies i can't help but think like wait did this influence george r, r. martin like i've mentioned mm-hmm. that on a lot of our previous awesomely bad 80s movies and in flight of dragons which is the next movie we're going to talk about there's a character named melisande there's the princess yep. melisande which is almost exactly the same name as melisandra from song of ice and fire so yeah. Actually, Melisande, the first thing I thought of was uh, Jacqueline Carey's Melisande character in. Cushiel. Uh, um, is that Cushiel's Dart? The Fedra books. Cushiel. Uh, yes, Cushiel's Dart. Yeah. 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 That's what I, that was my first thought. Mm-hmm. But. Um, but so I don't know who. So how. Uh, oh, let me just explain. So this movie, The Flight of Dragons, is uh, Rankin Bass. They'd been doing the company, they'd been doing like stop motion Christmas specials, which had done well enough that they were able to finance real uh and you know 2d animated features you know like hand-drawn animated features and so they did a bunch they did like the hobbit and um and the last unicorn which we'll be getting to and then this movie the flight of dragons i'd never heard of this before it was just one of the things that was mentioned uh on one of our previous panels in sort of like 80s sword and sorcery movies um and so like basically I'm a little confused, but but basically it seems like there was this guy, Peter Dickinson, and from what I gather, he had written a, like an actual nonfiction book about how he thought dragons had really existed in history, and he had all these like scientific rationalizations for how they could have flown and uh, breathed fire and stuff like that. I'm not 100% sure about that, but, that, but that's what my research seemed to indicate. And so they, so so this movie was kind of like inspired by that, and the Peter Dickinson character in the movie is him. And then for the plot, they actually took it from a completely different book called The Dragon and the George by Gordon R. Dixon, who's a kind of well-known um, fantasy and science fiction author. Um, sometimes at conventions, you'll see the Dorsai Irregulars or kind of volunteers who help um, provide security. And th- that's a reference to his um, Dorsai novels. Um, but uh, so that's this this movie. So, uh, so, Tom, what did you think of The Flight of Dragons? I thought it was really bad artwork, like Wednesday <laughs> afternoon cartoon special in the 1980s quality artwork. But, um, you know, the acting, they had James Earl Jones in mm-hmm. that kind of in mid-Star Wars trilogy form. They had Harry Morgan, who was <laughs> from MASH. He was, he was, I mean, he's a fantastic actor wherever you put him, even though he, I kept expecting him to say horse hockey. Yep. Uh, all the way through. And the writing was clever. I thought the, you know, I thought the, uh, it had a well explored theme of nature versus technology. It had something to say. I thought it was worth watching. I thought the scientific explanation of dragons was really cool. And it even explains why they would have small wings and still be able to fly, which has always been like a thing with dragons. And, um, I thought it had some clever dialogue. You know, I know a limpid pool of time when I see one or. Yeah, uh, I'll inspire Nep- Neptune himself, and there'll be great white sharks and and blah blah blah. And then the guy's like, "Yeah, that's great, but it's going to be on land. Let's kind of table that." And uh, <laughs> um, I thought there were I thought there were some great 
some great stuff about it. Um, I I don't think I really missed out by not springing for the HD version. <laughs> the artwork was pretty poor. And, uh, you know, it wasn't certainly the peak of James Earl Jones's career or anything, but, but, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was, I thought it was enjoyable. I thought there was, it had a lot going for it despite the bad artwork. I agree that the, 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 the dragon stuff was clever. I think that's definitely the highlight of this movie for me. So, yeah, so, so he basically posits that dragons were kind of like blimps, basically, that they, you know, that, that they, I don't know, somehow they have hydrogen gas inside them and set some of it on fire and stuff and that helps them float like balloons so they don't you, you use their wings really for lifts um so that was kind of clever and then the part where he says oh the, the reason dragons sleep on gold is because like they can't sleep on anything else because they set it on you know they can't sleep on anything non-metallic because they set it on fire and then gold is this soft comfortable metal to sleep on i was like oh that's actually pretty clever a soft yeah. comfortable metal <laughs> <laughs> um so so matt what do you think of the flight of dragons uh you have Harry Morgan as a voice actor in anything, and I'm all in. You know, like this old guy from from Mash, like t- you know, uh, you know, telling me the story. I'm like, take take me wherever you go, and I'm I'm with you. Um, you know, and then you throw in John Ritter, and it's like, forget it, I'm I'm sold. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I I really enjoyed this. I thought I thought the humor uh, of the dragons, like I liked that the you know that like that some of the dragons were kind of dopey and and you know a little a little sne- well all dragons are sneaky but um like uh i like the idea of the that this one more than some of the others was like quote unquote multicultural cuz they had like you know the asian mm-hmm. wizard and then the wizard from from the the cold area who was dark skinned so it wasn't all like white skinned people a little problematic in that the asian wizard was yellow but <laughs> maybe they, maybe they didn't think too hard about that one. I, I don't, don't think it was in, intentional. Um, there's some weird pedophilia in it where, like, the the, the <laughs> old knight was like, you know, I promised to fall in love with her when she was of age. And I'm like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, did he really just say that? Like, she's 12 and you're, like, 50. Um, but, like, there was really great humor in this. Like, the... Um, the dragon and and the main character Peter like they they get really drunk and then they wake up and the whole place is like destroyed and they're like they're like don't say anything you know <laughs> like just let's just walk away and pretend nothing happened um so i guess my my biggest gripe with this was that there was this promise that somehow peter was going to unite science and fantasy and I thought there was going to be this, like, the way he was going to defeat the wizard was using, like, the e- defeat the evil guy was was by using, um, you know, science, right? Yeah. To say, oh, well, if I just combine these two elements yep. and then blah, blah, blah. And instead it was just like, oh, I'm going to read, I'm going to read my physics 101 textbook with him. You know, force equals mass times acceleration, you know, know. A squared equals B squared plus C squared. Like, he wasn't saying anything. anything. He was just like, like... Like if I go to Wikipedia and like click on a random page and just start reading, like that's what he was doing. Yeah, and I, I had that note too. I have so just saying science things wards off evil. What? <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, that was such a missed opportunity to like teach kids about real science and you know how that might have worked. Especially like as you said, I didn't know this that the you know the impetus for this story was a guy who postulated that dragons were real and tried to use science to show that like i thought oh there there would be a perfect opportunity to to do something cool um i had i had fun with this um yeah the the animation style wasn't great it was very very like 
uh, as Thomas said, like, you know, Wednesday afternoon, like budget cartoon. Um, but I just, I don't know. I, I found it really charming. Yeah. I, I did think like if, if it's a kind of movie I would want to show kids to kind of like inspire them to be interested in science, I feel like it's like, I don't know, there's not enough like cartoons that have a message like that. So, um, I mean, I think for adults, the movie is a little boring, but, um, it's got some interesting ideas in it. But so, so Andrea, what did you, what's your overall take on this movie? Um, I, watching it, I felt like it was something that if I had seen it as a kid, I would have loved it. But as an adult, I was, as you said, bored. It was boring. And I spent most of the movie just, um, recognizing, uh, references to different, um, books and stories like Lord of the Rings, um, mm. the Anne McCaffrey books, the Pern books. Um, yeah. you know, wh where in the Pern books, I read all the Pern books when I was like a teenager. I love them. Um, but the, the dragons there make fire by chewing on sulfurous rock and that's how they make fire. I'm like, th this was exact, pretty much a similar, um, setup for how they make fire. Um, and you know, like they're owls carrying messages. That's, there's Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Um, Melisande, the, the blonde princess is Arwen and Daniela, the, the, is uh Eowyn. Um you know, I Harry Morgan I couldn't stop thinking of of, of Colonel Potter. Like I just couldn't get it. Also the, the old dragon is named Smurgal. Oh, that's right. <laughs> not not to And be also and also they had the wizards, the green wizard, the blue wizard, the golden wizard, it's like the white wizard, the gray, you know, Gandalf uh, the Gray, white yeah. and, and the brown. Yeah, um, they had a hobbit. They had a hobbit, exactly. <laughs> I was a big fan of the um, the Hobbit movie they made in the seventies. I loved it. Uh, so this looked exactly yeah, like that. So that was too. you know nostalgic for me. But as far as the story went, I was just like, oh, when is this going to be over? Actually, um, uh, when the old dragon died, I found that kind of moving. That was probably probably maybe the only yeah. part of the movie I thought was kind of moving. Oh, and John Ritter was uh, the, the the was the the name the um. The main guy, Peter Dickinson. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking like Jack Tripper through the whole thing too. <laughs> yeah, he was great um, though. Yeah, it's it was. Um, yeah, I would not have. I wouldn't have watched it all the way through. Um, but that said, I know if I had watched it when I was a kid, I would have loved it. It had dragons in it and wizards and magic and shit, and I would have totally loved it. But yeah, as an adult, it was not for me. Yeah, theme song, Don McLean. Don McLean, I know, I saw that too. I was like, oh, "What?" Really? Yes. Yeah. yeah. These these movies, like even the ones that aren't very good, they had some amazing, amazing talent. cast, it's, it's yes. amazing talent. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Cool. So let's move on to the Black Cauldron, nineteen eighty five. This is. Can I just uh, say my my boredometer score for this one is oh, a yeah, seven yeah, sure. out, is a seven out of ten for this one. You have to be really bored to watch this one. <laughs> movie, I think. Black Cauldron? Uh, no, 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 no. The no. Flight of Flight of Dragons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Black Cauldron, 1985, Disney movie. Uh, this is based on a series of books by Lloyd Alexander, which I actually I read all five of them as a kid. I don't remember them all that well. Um, I said I went to this movie as a kid, and the um, uh, the, there's a scene where it's and it's a like super generic um story in this movie. There's like a like basically farm boy who has a destiny and defeats mm -hmm. an evil lord and and all this stuff but um but there's a part where uh 
the, the the main villain is called the Horned King, and he uses the Black Cauldron. Oh, and also this is all stuff out of Welsh mythology, but he uses the, mm-hmm. the Black Cauldron to bring an army of skeletons back to life. And it was really, really scary uh, when I was a kid. I probably saw this when I was, I was literally like three or something when I saw this movie. There's some definitely haunting images in this that, you know, my wife walked in in the middle of this and she's like, what are you watching? I'm like, Disney. <laughs> you know, and there's like these evil skeletons rising up from the ground. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. It was 84, so I would have been seven. But I, I was really, really young and so um so actually they when they made this movie they did a test screening of it before they released it and let me just read you this um this this test screening was held at the studio's private theater in burbank california after the film particularly that climactic cauldron born sequence proved to be too intense and frightening for the majority of the children in the audience most of whom fled the theater in terror before it was even finished (laughs) sounds like your typical disney movie yeah so if you don't know this is like famously the biggest flop that Disney ever mm-hmm. did. And it almost like they literally almost closed down the studio, the Disney animation studio after this came out. Cause it was such it, a disaster. I, I stumbled on that slate article about it and it was fascinating about um, what happened and what, and it was, you know um, what's his name? The two guys came in. Um, uh, Eisner. Eisner and, and, and Katzenberg. Katzenberg just came in. That was a flop. Um, and that's when Bluth, Don Bluth left right then and there. Um, and right after that did Secret of Nim, which I loved as a kid. Uh, this movie, I'm sorry if I'm jumping in here, but this movie, I knew the books. I had the books. I don't think I ever read them, but I have the books. Um, but I'd never seen the movie and I don't think I missed anything because it is not good. <laughs> uh, Matt, what do you think of Black Cauldron? Okay. <laughs> So here we go. I I have this problem with a lot of Disney movies, not so much like their their latest stuff, but like basically it's story of like narcissistic children, <laughs> you know, going off on quests. Yeah. So it's ba- it's basically like this this wizard entrusts like the 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 biggest secret the world has, like. Like, don't tell anyone that this magic pig can lead the way to the <laughs> the evil black cauldron. And then, you know, I'm sending you off into the woods with, with this, this piglet. You know, be safe. And then so, like, immediately the first thing, the first thing the kid does is he loses the pig. Yeah. Like, you know, and then he's, like, dreaming of, like, oh, one day I'm going to be famous and I'm going to be this. And he literally, like, stares into his own reflection. Like, yep. like the narcissist image. And, and I was like, okay, like, I am not, like, if, if, if kids are supposed to identify with this character, I don't know if that would have, I don't know if I would have. I mean, maybe some kids would be like, yeah, I'm going to be, I mean, I guess every, you know, a, a young boy, 12 year old boy wants to be the, you know, the sword wielding hero and stuff like that. But there was something just really irritating about him that I know ne- I was never endeared to. Um, but then, you know, he gets captured by the evil, uh, the evil lord, the the uh, the Horn King, and he's like, "Oh, you know, I'll I'll kill your pig if you don't tell me the secrets." He's like, "Okay, you know, here's the pig." Like immediately gives the pig away. <laughs> <laughs> like there's, you know, there's. I'm like, "Oh, okay." I mean, at the end, he sort of has this moment where he's like, oh, "I need to be selfless," and um, but he doesn't do anything. It's all the sword. It's the magic sword. So I, I just, I don't know. I, I was never quite won over by this. Um, I, I did find that the animation style was, of course, you know, great. It's Disney. You know, it's uh, the little fuzzy guy, I forget his name, uh, sounded ex- 
exactly like Gollum. Like he had, was, it was Andy Circus, like my precious, my precious. <laughs> Well, I think yeah. it's a lot of that has to do with uh, any character that speaks about themselves in the third person. Yeah. Kind of remind, it's like a very well, Gollum-y well, thing. But, yeah, but Gurky is like super obviously a ripoff of Gollum to begin with. Um, especially yeah. Like, yeah, he's, the cli- like a, he's like a furry Gollum in an all-body toupee. <laughs> yeah. Because at the um, climax, well, the climax is like almost the same as the climax of Return of the King, except with him as like a good Gollum instead of an evil Gollum. But you mm-hmm. have the same thing. You have to like throw the magic... You have to, you're yeah. like up on this high cliff and you're going to have to destroy the magic and so on. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely thought that the scene where all the, uh, you know, the dead soldiers are, are uh, getting revived and like the green mist is, is reviving them and they're coming out like that was haunting and really, really cool. But also, you know, absolutely terrifying if I was a kid. So I, I could see, you know, kids <laughs> running, screaming from the theater having that is watched awesome. that. that- that is also very uh, Lord of the Rings, where the army of yeah. the dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that's really the thing with this movie is that I don't think it's really bad. You would think like you just hear like, "Oh, this is Disney's biggest flop ever." You would think it would just be like, "Oh my god, this is atrocious." It's not. It's it's just like there's nothing that memorable about it. Like everything is sort of like okay, but it's um, generic. Yeah, but it's just really sort of bland um, fantasy. I was just annoyed through the whole thing. Um, I just thought it was so childish. And I, I, Matt, your point about the narcissistic child, you know, there's one point where he first, where he gets the sword and he uses it for the first time. Um, and he's, I'm, I'm sorry, they're trying to escape captivity. He stops there looking at the sword, laughing and turning around and around. I'm like, what fucking idiot who's trying to escape captivity stops and laughs at his new sword? Like it was just. And, well, and I know also, this is all yeah. Disney and, and, and all that. The girl was annoying. Every, the goofy characters, the little troll thing, annoying. Mm. I just, I was, I don't know, maybe if I was a kid, I would have enjoyed it. Um, but. Well, he steals from the dead, right? He takes the yes. sword out and then she's like, well, you took that off a dead person. He goes, well, he doesn't need it. And like, <laughs> that, that's something that you would see like, like a, a villain or like a, like a right. robber yeah. take from somebody. Like, they're not going to use this. But like, the, it's like your hero. This is the, the, the character that, you know, your audience is presumably going to identify with. And he's just, yeah, I'll just steal from the dead. They're not right. using it. Right. And Matt, I think, I think that is a, that's a fine line that people, that you need to walk if you're writing young adult fiction, because I think that's a common theme that like you start out narcissistic and then you gradually start to become selfless. And I mean, look at Luke Skywalker at the beginning of Star Wars. He starts out, uh, you know, just totally concerned about going to Tachi Station to hang out. A a whiny kid. He's a whiny kid at the beginning. Whiny kid, but, but I don't, I would, I know we're not talking about Star Wars, but I, I don't, I wouldn't call him narcissistic at that point. I think he's just kind of whiny. Yeah, but, you're right. You're yeah, right. He probably yeah. isn't fully narcissistic, but that's why I say there's a recipe there that they don't follow as well in this, in this movie. And, and I felt that well, that way with Dragon Slayer too, that the, that the main character in that, we reviewed that last time. Um, I couldn't stand, I thought he was way too narcissistic the whole time. And I felt this way about this guy too, but I disagree. That, you know, I, I think you, you need a certain amount of that. Like, um, you know, Stephen King points out that in, in, uh, The Shining, he hated the movie The Shining, even though, you know, it's, it's a great movie in a lot of ways, but he hated that. The thing he hated about it was 
Jack Nicholson starts out crazy from scene one. You know, he's like mm. rolling his eyes. It's okay, honey. He saw it on the television. You know, he's he's crazy from scene one. Whereas Stephen King's point is, no, the character has to gradually get crazy. And I think there, I think there's more to this character's redemption in this movie than than you're giving it credit for. Like, I I really like the scene near the end where he decides to choose Googie over the sword because you wouldn't think. You, you know, do you think, oh, isn't it convenient that Googie's like, no, no, I'll go jump in the, I'll, I'll kill myself. That was affecting. You're, you're right. I, I, cause I was like, okay, he, he did ultimately at the end, yeah, sacrifice I, himself. Yeah. But I agree with you that it could have been more. It should have been more gradual. There should have been steps to it instead of just at the end. He suddenly is like, oh, I'm not going to be a jerk anymore. I'm going to be, you know, a little more selfless. But I, I thought it had a kind of cool story to it. I thought the Disney aesthetic was didn't fit at all. I thought the whole mm-hmm, Disney, yeah. the way they, you know, the art and the way the characters talk and everything was just wrong for this story. I agree. And, and I, I did think my favorite scene in this, I thought there was a really good scene in this where that frog-like minion, not the golem, not the gurgi or whatever, but the minion of the evil guy where yeah. he stops in front of the door and he's like agonizing. He's got to deliver some bad news and he's like agonizing all over what's going to happen to him when he delivers it. I'd never seen that in a movie. You know, there's always like the the evil sorcerer's minion. and uh, But I had never seen him like stop and be like, oh, this is going to be so bad for me. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't want to tell him this. Like that was – I was like, wow, I feel that right now. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, but overall, yeah, I agree. I don't recommend this unless you are some weird mixture of child and adult. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be scared by anything, but you have this really childlike aesthetic for what you think is fun. Um, then you would like this movie. I would, I would, uh, if you haven't read the Slate article about it and the history of the movie, I'd, I'd suggest you read it because it was really interesting. But the thing they brought up, um, about this is what they, they there's five books in this series and they just, picked cherry picked points story points from each of the five books and there is actually there is actually a big character arc in the book where he goes from this kid to like an actual hero um but because it's a five book story arc you can't really do that in one movie so that you know that's why there's this sense of lack of completion of uh, and depth to his change um so that's like there's this fantastically funny movie, unintentionally funny movie called Samurai Assassin. It's a, it's like a. Oh a, god, a over, I've seen that. It's so brilliant, but they did the same thing. There were like eight movies, and they just like cherry picked scenes out of all the different movies and mashed them together. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting. I'd never, I hadn't thought about that, Tom. That you know that this might be a good story, but it's just like the Disney aesthetic is totally wrong mm-hmm. for it, and you can't just make a Disney movie out of any story. Like there has to be yeah. some match between the material and the, and the, and the visual aesthetic. Yeah. That, that was one of my notes I wrote down was too Disney. Yeah. <laughs> Way too Disney. And, and not, not that Disney's bad. I mean, if it was no. Disney and it had a Disney story, fine, but it's just right. that these elements of like the bringing things back from the dead and the, and you know, the magic pig, which is a good idea. The magic pig that knows the way that's like telepathic and that, all the elements were kind of cool in a creepy way, but then you match them up with this Disney cutesy, everything's super cute and character driven, you know, or not character driven, but 
the characters are like, you know, they have a yeah. lot of character but in see, their the, voice. And I felt like the the problem was it wasn't creepy enough. Like it's a creepy story, yes. but it's got this Disney treatment with this yes. cute little pig, which yes. immediately made me think of Charlotte's Web. And I'm like, how can yeah. I get scared by Charlotte's Web and this cute little pink pig with the big eyes? Well, right. And I you have know? nothing against Disney. And I mean, like this, mm-hmm. the the, yeah. the crushing failure of this set up like the this like amazing period for Disney where mm-hmm. they had like um, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, mm-hmm. like. Um, you know, Beauty and the Beast, all this stuff. Um, but it just, it does seem like there's just something about the Disney aesthetic that does not work, at yeah. least with audiences, when they try to do like epic, you know, sword and sorcery or epic fantasy or like space opera, like any of those kinds of things. Like, it seems like audiences just don't want the Disney treatment to like. Because it's, it, those are serious things. And Disney, you can't get seriousness out of Disney. And Disney animation, Disney stories, it just, especially in this era, era when you're coming off, you know, um, uh, well, Snow White is the 40s, but, but like all those classic Disney movies that I grew up watching and loving, there, there's no real sense of, of death or, or, or seriousness to them. And this is a serious story. I picture there being like a term, like a slang term they throw around in like the Disney story department where someone's like, oh, we should do this. And someone's like, no, nah, it's too black cauldron. <laughs> yeah. I want to get Matt back in here. Matt, do you have anything else you want to say about black cauldron? Not really. Um, I, I did actually enjoy the, the three witches, though. I, I found them probably the most entertaining part of it. I, I liked how they hid the cauldron within a million other cauldrons and just, just their they're kind of uh you know back and forth shtick with each other i found i found amusing i feel like i'd seen it before but it was just well, it's 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 uh it's Macbeth. 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 yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean just just sort of the humor with, with See, why doesn't well. disney do Macbeth? that would be yeah seriously disney's Macbeth. <laughs> i don't know what you guys are talking about Macbeth. this is clearly from that star trek original series episode where the three witches talk to captain kirk i don't remember that one I don't remember that. I don't remember, but Tom, but Tom, so, so you don't remember the part where Flood or Flum gets turned into a frog and is like trapped between the witch's giant breasts? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know how I missed that. What happens? Yep, he gets stuck between her breasts. Yep. Oh, I do remember that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, I think I had blocked that. Never mind. Yes. So who says that you don't get giant breasts in Disney children's cartoons? <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. They just might not be the kind of giant breasts. They're not the same quality as giant breasts. <laughs> not the same quality. No, not at all. Right. <laughs> all right. So on that note, let's uh, move on to our final movie here, The Last Unicorn. So this is legit one of my favorite movies of all time. As mm-hmm. I said, I've seen it probably 50 times. I don't even know. I could quote the whole movie from memory. Um, but So obviously I'm not um, impartial when it comes to this movie. So uh, I don't know how it, how it holds up for adults. Um, I think Matt, were you the only person who's, who had seen this before? I've seen it. Oh, I, I saw it about 20 years ago. Oh, right, right. Uh, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't remember it well at all. Okay. Andrew, did you see this as a kid? Um, I don't know if I was a kid kid, but it was whenever it came out. I don't know that I saw it in the theater, but I, Oh, maybe I did see it in the theater. Um, it was 82 that it came out. Well, sort of a kid. Um, yeah, I, it didn't make an impression on me at the time. I was just like, and I'd read the book too, and it was just like, eh. But um, watching it now, it was um, really spectacular. Like, amazing movie. 
Yeah. So, so the, the the plot is that there's a unicorn, and she starts to feel like she's maybe the last unicorn in the world, and she sets out to find the other unicorns, and makes friends with a uh, sort of bumbling wizard named Schmendrick, and uh, an older woman named Molly Grew, and she finds out that the unicorns were all uh, driven by this giant flaming monster called the Red Bull, driven to the castle of King Haggard, where they've all vanished. And, uh, and so they go to King Haggard's castle and, uh, to try to figure out what's happened to the other unicorns. And in order to protect the, uh, the unicorn from the Red Bull, the bumbling magician turns her into a, a human woman. And so she has to sort of deal with being mortal for the first time. Um, so, so Matt, what did you, what did you think of this movie? Uh, this was my favorite of the five. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it, the story really refreshing. Uh, that it wasn't your typical hero's quest narrative. Um, I found like they could have done this like really, really badly. This like last unicorn, you know, female who's like, you know, running through the forest and just they could have gotten that voice so wrong. And, and they, it just, it just, they got it. They, I think they nailed it. Um, I, uh, I found that, you know, all the characters, were endearing. Like I, I loved, uh, I loved Schmendrick and, and, you know, I loved, I loved the, um, you know, even, even the, uh, the, like the evil wizard's son was, was an interesting character. Um, I thought that the, um, like all these movies that we saw, they have this kind of late seventies, early eighties, uh, like acid folk music, like that kind of like, <laughs> yeah. like, like, I feel like we should all be dropping acid and, and looking at the sky or something while we're listening to this. Um, it's it's like a music that makes you alternately sad and happy like at the same time um and i found it effective um i i did notice so i'm sure you know this david that the the book the original book uh was in, was inspired by a tapestry in um mm-hmm. Peter Beagle, who wrote it, was inspired by a tapestry in the cloisters. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure I saw that at least, you know, riffs on that tapestry, if not the exact tapestry oh, in yeah. this film, like in the background yeah. se- several times. Well, the, like whole, the, the whole intro sequence is, yeah, is, is the, but there's the also other, tapestries. Yeah, yeah, there's also others uh, throughout. Um, so, so that to me, um, that to me really worked. The all star uh, cast uh, worked and, just I found the ending really, really effective. Um, you know, just just like the wave, the waves of unicorns coming out of the sea w- was such a powerful image. Um, I had forgotten exactly how they were imprisoned. So at first, I was like, "Where?" I mean, maybe you could answer this. Were were they turned into narwhals? And no. then they they were like, "No, they were okay." Yeah, I was like, "No, they were oh, just like." Floating in the water, but they were afraid to come out of the water because of the Red Bull. Yeah. And, like, I like that this show was not – this cartoon was not afraid to have violence because, like, you have the harpy come down and eat the the evil witch. And she's like, I'm immortal now because I'm the only one who's ever trapped a harpy. And, like, you turn around and they're like, don't look. And and it's – you don't actually see the mutilated body. But just from them not showing it actually made it worse for me. I'm like, oh my god, like that's horrible. And this is like a cartoon. Um, but I loved it. I, uh, just 
yeah, I could go on, but it was, I found it really great. Yeah. Yeah. Let me say, I mean, I think that just like, there's just something about, and again, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not impartial when it comes to this movie, but you can tell that it's based on a book and you mm-hmm. can tell it's based on a good book. I mean, there's just something mm-hmm. literate about the, mm-hmm. the film, just the, 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 the dialogue is, is really amazing. And it just sort of like taps into the idea of myth and stories and what they mean to us and, and whether we can believe them and, and all this stuff. It's just, to me, is completely different from any of these other movies that um you know were produced around the same time on similar subject well, it's, matter it's smart and it's sophisticated first of all it's it's so much more beautiful than any of the other films it's just stunningly gorgeous to look at um and it it, it struck me as i said i saw it when i was a kid and it was just like eh all right and I, I also couldn't understand why the unicorns were in the water like i remember thinking that as a kid like this doesn't make any sense it it I didn't need it to make sense now. Um, but it struck me that the whole story is actually a metaphor for men who control women. Um, it, it's really about controlling men, um, which I, I found really interesting and adult about it. it. This was the most adult movie as well. Uh, I mean, aside from the boobies, but... Um, well, well, no, and also, I mean, like the character of um, Molly Grew, she she's like so angry when yes. she first meets the unicorn because she's like, "You were supposed to come when I was young and beautiful, and yes. how dare you come now?" And yeah. also, um, King, yeah. Hag- King Haggard, he's he's like, nothing makes him happy except the yep. looking at looking at his unicorns, and that's also, I feel like, a very like grown up like mm-hmm. theme for the movie to deal with. Yeah, yeah. The uh, we- the only, and I I wanted I also got really choked up at the end. Like I it was exactly what you said Matt. very affecting um that that it's it's about growing up where you now she feels regret so that's like an adult thing being able to feel regret and sorrow um so i I just thought the themes of like women freeing themselves and 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 becoming an adult and understanding what regret is 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 really to me has a lot of meaning can we talk about that that scene that you just mentioned there about the how dare you come now? I found that one of the most poignant or most effective yes. scenes in the movie. And I was kind of like, I was trying to wrap my head around like, now a unicorn is supposed to be a metaphor for female innocence, isn't it? And so mm-hmm. I was trying to think yes. like, is she talking about like, how dare you come now? Like innocence or, or I was like, that doesn't quite make it seem right. Or like true love or like, I was trying to figure out like it, cause it really hit me, but I didn't know why. I was like, it's why? magic. It's it's the loss of childhood magic. Yes. So like so she so she believed in in magic as a child, and then as she grew up, she got old and cynical. And then all of a sudden, when she's already old and cynical, and and clearly she's not quote unquote the the love interest, right? That then this thing comes into into her life, and she's like, oh my god, you were real all along, but I've I've lost. I've lost my connection to that. So she's really angry that she lost that. But then yeah. she realizes, oh, wait, it's here. It's still here. It's in front of me. And well, I can still be, make peace be, with that. But she should be happy that she can still make peace with it. Where she says, how dare you show up now? That hit me in the gut. And I was like, why? Why? Yeah. And I couldn't figure it out. Like, why? It's lost innocence. It's a lot. It's a, it's a, sorry, not innocence. Lost, lost youth. Lost youth. Lost sense of, of wonder. So yeah. she gets her sense I, I, of that all the back. greatness is behind you. She gets her sense of wonder back, but she didn't have it during the years when it would have mattered to her, when she would have been like raising a family or like meeting, you know, falling in love, raising a family, all that. She didn't have that like sense of wonder about it all. She was just kind of like going through the motions, maybe. And then she suddenly gets her sense of wonder back, but all the experiences of life are past her. So that kind of like makes sense. Uh, if that's what you're saying, that kind of makes sense to me, I think. 
Yeah, it it was really affecting. And, and I liked that, you know, out of all the films we watched, you know, a female character who's, who's there not to be a sex object, who's, Mm -hmm. who's, who's, has depth to her and who has, um, you know, more to say than, than just, just what she looks like. And I, I found that, um, affecting for, for all the reasons we said. Yeah, and I love that she comes out of nowhere. Like she's just like this. In any, in a lesser movie, she would have been, um, you know, just like a a passing character. Like, oh, she's part of this band of outlaws, and and the unicorn gets away from her. But no, she becomes like a central character in the in the movie, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, and 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 as I said, I mean, I've I've watched this so many times, so I could quote the whole thing from memory. But it was weird to see, like, but I haven't watched it. I think I watched it once, maybe. 10 or 15 years ago. And then I hadn't watched it before that since I was a kid. And so watching it now, it was, it really struck me like even all the, all the previous, now that I'm older all the previous mm-hmm. times when the, um, the unicorn gets turned into a human and she's like, I can feel this body dying all around me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then like, yeah. when she's like, I will not love you when I'm a, a unicorn, like I don't want to turn back and see unicorn. Like those things like really, really hit me in a way yeah. that they never did before when I was younger. Or where she says, you know, I'm at the beginning, she's like, I'm a unicorn. I, I don't know regret, only sorrow. And then at the end, she goes, now I know regret too, because she had been mortal. And I was like, wow, that was powerful. It was really powerful. And I wondered too, the whole time I was thinking like, okay, and maybe you guys are going to say this is obvious, or maybe you're going to say you think I'm wrong. But I wondered the whole movie, like, was this like, kind of a metaphor for for being a woman, the whole movie, like she starts out, and she's just total pure innocence. And then she, she suddenly is like, has that great scene that you just mentioned where she's like, now nah, I can feel this body dying around me. And this is like, horror. I don't like this. I don't understand anything. Nothing makes sense to me anymore. And I was like, it kind of feels like what it felt like to be an adolescent boy. But I was wondering if that's like, if that resonate, if that's what this is trying to be, like a, uh, kind of a theme for, you know, I don't want to go too far into what Tim Powers would say. No, it's about vampire, va- dragons, about <laughs> drink, drinking blood. Look at it, it's right there. But I wonder if this is kind of a metaphor too for what it's like to, you know, be a young girl and then change into a woman and then well, have to yeah, it's, deal it's, with all this. It's a growing up story. That's, that's yeah. what regret is, is you learn, you learn what regret is as you get older. I, I, you know, as when I was a kid, I was saying it didn't mean anything to me because I didn't understand regret. I didn't understand sorrow. I didn't understand loss. And now as an, as a, you know, middle aged person, I do understand all those things. So it me, it has meaning for me. Um, and there's also that scene when she turns the tables on the red bull and fights back and yeah. fights it back. And that also is like, you know, take uh, w- women taking back their power and fighting off the abuse. You know, the the, the abuse of men. Frankly, I, I'm, I'm seeing it through this lens. For, uh, so I can't not see it through this lens. Well, but another thing, but it's go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry, let me say the, the another thing with the scene where she finally confronts the Red Bull that I'd never really consciously. I mean, I it, I, I think I before I've been looking at it in plot terms. It's like, oh, like the guy that she loves is killed, and that makes her angry, and so now she fights the Red Bull. But the thing I never like really picked up on before, I don't think, is that what makes her different at this point than all the other unicorns and why none of them could do this. And she can is because she's had this experience of being turned into a human. And so she has all these emotions that they've never felt. And so like the other unicorns don't get really upset about things. They don't feel the sort of anger and hatred and want revenge. And it's only that experience of having been human that, that and, kind and, of. And also mortal. That's, that's another thing. Like the, the unicorns are immortal. So therefore nothing means much to them. But when you're mortal and you know, you can die. There's, there's a power to that. 
Um, it also reminded me a lot of, uh, do you know the movie Wings of Desire? Um, where, uh, it's, uh, Vim Vendors. It's about two angels who, uh, well, it's about an angel who decides to become mortal because he falls oh, in yeah, love with a yeah. mortal woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an angel, he has no emotions. He doesn't, he loves all of humanity, but he doesn't understand real love. And he has to, when he becomes mortal, he has, he understands finally what emotions are. Um, and it's a really affecting movie if you've never seen it, but, that's but that's cool. what this reminded me. And I, I wonder too, that makes a lot of sense now. It makes more and more sense as you guys are talking. Cause it's like, well, all the other unicorns have, like you said, Dave, have never experienced, uh, any, any, negative emotions or any hardships. So this is almost kind of a like an explanation of, look, yes, you're losing your innocence. We get it. Or you've lost your innocence. But with that comes a lot of power to overcome things that you wouldn't have otherwise had because you wouldn't have cared about overcoming things. Um, so that's that's really cool. I didn't notice all this. And I, you know, I think I agree this is a great story. Um, it's fantastic writing. The acting is great. You know, the cast is phenomenal. I mean, you, yeah. Matt, Matt, you pointed out, you know, they got the unicorn voice right. Well, you know, when you have Mia Farrow doing it, yeah, maybe, exactly. it's, mm-hmm. maybe it's easier. You got this great actress and you got Christopher Lee, you got Jeff Bridges and Alan yeah. Arkin and just all these fantastic people. And then a score by America. And yet with all of that, it, it, I, I can't deny it's a fantastic movie, but it just wasn't. For me, I hate to say it, but it wasn't, it just wasn't as enjoyable to me because it wasn't a movie. Not that there's anything wrong with this. It wasn't a movie made for me. It was made for other people. It was made for, I don't know, it was, it was made a lot for women, but obviously for you, Dave, and you, Matt. Um, it, it just didn't hit my aesthetic or what I, what I would really enjoy in a movie. But the whole time I was watching it, I was like, this is a perfect movie made for somebody else who's not me. I, I get it. This is awesome. It, and I have no, you know, I wouldn't, uh, What's her name? A Captain Marvel actress there. Uh, uh, Brie Larson. Brie Larson. Yeah, Brie she Larson. got she got dragged through the media because she and and through the critic through the fans and everything because she supposedly, which she didn't say, but she supposedly said, you know, um, I don't want men to come watch my movies. Well, it's not what she said about Captain Marvel. She was talking about a, a different, totally different movie where she said, you know, this movie wasn't made for male critics, so male critics who pan it. You know, it's not your place to pan it. And that's kind of how I feel about this movie. I didn't, I didn't thoroughly enjoy it as much as I would have if I was somebody different, but I understand, you know, it's a very good movie and, and a lot of people would really enjoy it. Well, I, I would disagree and, and say that I don't think this is a movie made specifically for, for men or women or boys or girls. I think this is a movie aimed towards children, yes, but I, I feel like, it's a story of growing up and it's mm-hmm. a sto- and i think that it operates like the best stories like the the best myths they operate on a kind of subconscious level and i think that's that's why it's so effective is that it's hitting a lot of these um universal emotions that we all feel this like as as we grow up and we lose that sense of magic that sense of wonder and uh we you know we feel like we're losing something but we gain something at the same time yeah. so i i feel yeah. like this movie perfectly captures that within a story. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should clarify. I wasn't trying to say this movie was made only for women. I was using Brie Larson's quote and saying this movie was made for somebody who's not me. But uh, No, I get it. I understand. I mean, you know, not every movie works for everybody. 
Right. Uh, I just won't talk to you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> just get on your motorcycle and just get the F out yes. of here. Well, as long as if, – if I can be permitted another little negative comment about this movie, I hate to be the only one who's got the dissenting voice, but I absolutely wanted to kill myself in the first five minutes or kill whoever made the movie, which the first – it got so much better, but the first five mo- minutes was so maddening to me. I mean, she asks an insane butterfly for advice. Her research, her research skills are broken. <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't know, I don't know who you, what you're trying to do, but it doesn't. None of this makes any sense. And if this butterfly doesn't be quiet right now, well, I'm, I, well let me say, say Tom, because it's funny because you know, growing up, I would never imagine, never have imagined that anybody could not love this movie, right? And at one point, um, John Joseph Adams watched it because he heard because I mentioned it was one of my favorite movies, and he he didn't like it at all. And he's like, just like the butterfly thing alone, like that makes it a bad <laughs> movie. Just all that all that by itself. Well, it, I disagree, um, but <laughs> but I, but I get his point. It was but, irritating. No, but it's 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 and it's kind of interesting though because it, the version that I watched growing up, um, my mom had taped off television, and it was like edited for time, and they had made they had cut a lot of stuff out. And all those cuts were like 100% good cuts that the movie should have made in the first place. And so the butterfly thing was like a third as long um, in the version that I watched growing up. So I, I actually agree that the the butterfly thing in the actual movie is way too long and kind of annoying. And there's like it's weird because there's like these weird tonal shifts where almost all mm-hmm. the movie is sort of like sad and mm-hmm. melancholy and beautiful and haunting and then you have just these like these weird moments like with the uh, butterfly or with like the tree that turns into the woman with the giant breath, yeah, which is the other. A- another, yeah. yes. They got to fit it in somehow. Picking up on our theme there. Yeah. So, I mean, and those are like, I, I think that the the parts where it's trying to be funny in that way are not always successful. I mean, I have some criticisms I could make of the movie. Yeah, so. I, I do too, but it's it just seems so minor. Like, mm-hmm. I, everybody else liked the music. I hated the music. I thought it was too melodramatic. Um, I didn't like this, the where she starts singing and then he starts singing like Jeff Bridges should not sing. I love Jeff Bridges, but please don't ever, ever do that again. Andrea, I, didn't um, like I just, the, I didn't like the music either. I should have, because I love America. I love that. I love that. I group. do too. But, but I, but but I, I just, I, yeah, I agree with you. I thought the music, I was like, no, they're starting another song. But even the songs, <laughs> but even like the, the, um, the melodrama of, you know, there's the castle, dun, dun, dun. I was like, oh, come on. Like, this is more sophisticated than that. And it should be more sophisticated than that. You know, that's, that's like the child, the child fantasy movie kind of music. Um, and I guess maybe as a child, cause, it, cause this is one of those movies that it appeals to kids as a fantasy story and it appeals to adults who, um, you know, want to be sad about the fact that they're getting older and, and <laughs> made mistakes in life and, and shit happens. Um, but, but yeah, the movie, the, the music was just, um, it got on my nerves, but that's really my only problem with it. Um, the butterfly thing was just weird. I didn't, it didn't make me angry. It just was strange with the singing, won't you come home, Bill Bailey? Like, what the yeah. fuck is that? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Bizarre. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, I am. I want to go back to, I mean, Matt mentions the witch, Mommy Fortuna, and I just think there's so much interesting stuff going on there where she has this carnival of sort of sick animals and she casts illusions on them to make people think that they're these incredible monsters out of mythology. And she says, you know, like people only Mm -hmm. fall for these illusions because they want to. And there's this idea that like people can't see the unicorn they can't tell that she's a unicorn. She just looks like a horse to them. And so the witch has to create a 
illusory horn on the unicorn so that they think that it's so that they recognize that the unicorn is actually a unicorn. And, um, and I just think there's, there's, there's just a lot of interesting ideas all going on there and about belief and self-deception and yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, I think the idea is that like, you know, as we get older and cynical, we don't see magic anymore. We only see, we only see magic when we want to see it. Like it's again, it's like that loss of sense of wonder that it's just, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's very capitalist in a way. It's like, here's your, here's your, you know, five minutes of magic that you pay for. Now go back to your, your mundane life. And, and, you know, I think the part of the theme of this is that there's, there's, magic everywhere i actually I have, I have a slightly different take on that um to to me it felt like like the three stages of life where at first she's completely innocent just wanders out into the world to on her little quest to find others like herself and the whole like people only see what they want to see that self-deception thing that's like your your 20s where you only see people as you want to see them you only see your life as you want to see it because that's because you're innocent and you don't understand some of the bad things that can happen and then the end is you become a full adult um full of regret and and um but but also an adult with power and agency now because you know how to fight back against those sort of things that that was that's my like hot take on it so how does the, I, I'm really like, I hope the listeners are, are enjoying this, like digging this deep into the theme, you know, like yeah. uh, there's, there's some quote, don't pick at the, ne- don't pick at the metaphor. It leaves a nasty scab. Oh, that's from, <laughs> uh, that's from, uh, Robert Sheckley. And Dave, you wrote a good story about that. Great story about that too. About the, what was it? The, the blackbird. Yeah. About yeah. digging and digging at metaphors until you, you're finally, you're just like, it's pointless. But, um, I don't want to go too far into it, but I was wondering, like, if that's the case, like, what, uh, you know, the old woman, how does she fit into that? The, the old, uh, witch, she was, fa- she was, uh, fascinating to me too, how she had this, it was great how she had that, the whole thing you described, Dave, how she had that traveling carnival and she, she had to cast illusions and she even had to cast one on the unicorn and the harpy because nobody could recognize them for what they were. But the, the real harpy, she kind of has this interesting relationship with it where her helper is like, it's going to get out and kill you someday. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I know. I fully know it. Is. I know it will get out and kill me. But I just love that the fact that I was able to catch it is like makes me so like proud of myself. Makes and, her immortal. Uh, immortal. I don't think she ever said immortal because she said. I think was, she did. No, no she goes that way I live get forever. Kill her. Let's, let's ask David. You know, yeah. I have to <laughs> No, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no. So the idea, Tom, is that, you know, like you're like, oh, I'm going to write a novel. So people will remember me for generations to come or something. Oh, uh, immortal in that regard. But it's it's that like um, Ozymandias idea that like no matter how no matter what you do, eventually it's all going to be turned to dust and be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if okay. you like torment this immortal creature, it's always going to remember you. It's going to live forever, and so you, oh, you will so have this. Yeah. So she yeah, will so have an immortality a, through its memory. It's mm-hmm. kind of a pseudo immortality, which isn't that great. It's kind of like Woody Allen had that great quote in one of his short stories. Like I don't want to live on in, in, through my work. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, but, but so no, was, but but you, you you get Tom that this is like the fact that you were here, that you did something, that you lived, yeah, oh, yeah, will, will always endure because. Yeah, but it's I, but but it's because, and this is the interesting thing, because you were so awful to this creature, right? Being kind, the implication is wouldn't do it. Like you have to like scar it emotionally so that it will never forget you. 
Yeah, so I get it. So the so the unicorn, you know, the the unicorn being the innocent young person is like, oh well, here, seeing like here's an alternative. Here's one way as you start to get introduced to losing your innocence. Here's an example of what you could do. You could you know try to create something uh, through like sheer force of will that's so amazing that you'll kind of live on forever through it. Like that makes sense as a metaphor to me now. Or do I not get that? Am I completely in the dark? Are you, are you guys all just thinking like, oh, well, he doesn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thomas, Thomas. <laughs> well, no, but I, I don't think it's it's just like one thing. I mean, it's, you know, any kind of real art is subject to multiple interpretations. Yes. And I think it's interesting to see how much deeper of a conversation you can have about The Last Unicorn than any of these other movies, right? Like, you know. Well, it's because it has depth. It's, as you said, a real story. Can I say, too, I, I worked in a restaurant that opened in the early 80s called The Last Unicorn and never knew, <laughs> never had read the book or seen the movie. But I worked there for five plus years. And uh, the owner of the, I would love to talk to the owner now. She was a very strong sort of, um, I, I think, like ex hippie woman. Uh, it was two, it was her and her husband owned it. But she was uh, I, I think of her when I think I, I don't think the. I don't think her husband came up with a name for the restaurant, but it was kind of a hippie restaurant. It had really brilliant, amazing food. And I would love to be able to talk to her now and be like, did you get this? I mean, she clearly must have gotten the name for the, for the restaurant from the book and or the movie. So, uh, so I would love to talk to her about it now and, be, and she, and see like what her take on that was. Well, and, did and they have course... any dishes or anything that were like harpy <laughs> burgers? <or something? laughs> Well, it, it ha- yeah. uh, that's funny. I put that, I have an unpublished novel and it have unicorn meat in it. But, but, uh, but anyway, no, they, they had, they had artwork though all over the walls. They had this frosted glass panel over the wall, above the bar that had, um, images that I would like to go back and look at those now and be like, oh, that's from the movie because mm-hmm. it, it did look kind of like that same kind of artwork. Yeah. I was just going to say, of course, I've been there because it's in Waterville where by Colby oh, yeah. College where Tom and oh, I. Yeah. Went to yeah. school at, at different times, but yeah, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, um, I uh, I also just want to mention the uh, just the image of uh, Prince Lear. Oh well, first of all, I'll say when I went to um, my my parents and grandparents on a camping trip read the book to me because they had heard the uh, movie was going to be coming out. So in preparation for going to see the movie, we read the book together first, and then we went to see the movie. And I was so taken with it that I came home and made my own little picture book version of it with you know little mm-hmm. like you know little drawings of all the scenes that stuck out to me and so on. Um, but then the other thing that really sort of hit me from this movie at, as a kid was this image of Prince Lear where he like writes poetry and kills dragons. And I was like, totally like, Oh, that's, that's who I want to be when I grow up. I want to be somebody. I kill dragons and I write with poetry. your poetry. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like Vogon poetry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I just want to I want to note that that you know it's funny like what can have a huge impact on you when you're when you're that age, you know. Mm-hmm. And also like I, I I sort of had this image of Prince Lear as this like warrior poet kind of guy, and it was weird to go back and watch the movie later and be like, oh, he's actually like not a writer at all. He's like trying to write like one sentence and it's bad. He crumples up the paper, you know. He never actually, you know. I had I had much more of an image of him as like a a poet than I think the movie mm-hmm. really uh, justifies. Does he is he a poet in the book? I have never read the book. I actually don't remember the book really at all at this point. It's so I funny. I I know I read it. And I don't remember it either. I mean, I know it's a classic, and but it, for some reason, it didn't stick in my mind. But I feel like I should go back and read it now, though. 
Yeah, I, I'm gonna go try it. I'm gonna go seek it out and read it. If uh, I was thinking, maybe I'd read it to my kids, but uh, I've been reading like the Hobbit and uh, Harry Potter books. But maybe this one would be a little bit far out of reach for a five year old. Uh, well, this movie came out in '82, so I would have been about five when I when my you know when when my parents and grandparents read it to me. So okay, well, you might, you might have been a little precocious compared to other kids, though. <laughs> Your kids might be a little slow. I mean, that's... Uh... <laughs> I wouldn't say they're slow, but they might not this, You're just saying this because he didn't like The Last Unicorn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <that's... laughs> they might have bad taste in children's television. <laughs> uh, all right. The other thing I just want to um, note that I think is really interesting that I never knew until I was doing uh, research for this is that the company that did the animation... So this was... Rankin Bass is the company that mm -hmm. made this, but they kind of outsourced. They did the script and everything, but they outsourced the actual animation to a Japanese studio called Topcraft. Yep. And like a lot of those people went on to basically be the core of the studio that would become Studio Ghibli, which yeah. is like um, Hayao Miyazaki's company. That's like the Disney yeah. of Japan. It's done like Princess Mononoke and yeah, you know, well, yeah. I, I, I saw that too, and I was like, wow, that is amazing. That like, there's so much connection between all of these movies you know with with you know don bluth there was a the, the thing about don bluth and uh lassiter and tim burton for cauldron the whole frazetta thing um sctv there's like it's it's amazing how much animation has um influence on other filmmakers and other mediums yeah. did you see uh, peter chung who did eon flux he was a layout artist on yes Fire and yes Ice. i saw that too yeah oh wow uh, one, I looked up some trivia too, and uh, Christopher Lee, Sir Christopher Lee, apparently was a big fan of the book, and he showed up to the recording sessions, and he had an annotated copy of the book that he had made notes in, and that he was he would show to the director and be like, "We have to have this part. This part has to be in this scene. We have to make sure this comes in." And he even uh, Peter S. Beagle showed up to a recording session, and Christopher Lee went up to him after he did his lines and said, "Look, I really want to make sure I got that right. Would you please?" You know, tell me if that was wrong, and I will redo it. So he was—he uh, was all about this movie, apparently. Yeah, well, and Peter S. Beagle wrote the screenplay. Wrote the screenplay, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he didn't have full creative control, obviously, and I, I think he was sort of unhappy with some of the stuff that they did. But he did—he yeah. did do the, like the original screenplay. I, I think it said he came around at the end to liking it um, as a work of art. He thinks that he thought the art was beautiful and. So I think he actually yeah. did. Well, come in around. recent years, he's like gone on, like when they've screened it in movie theaters, he's gone and talked about it and stuff. So I think he's, you know, pretty happy with how it turned out at this point. Yeah. They're, they're talking about doing a live action version of it as of like 2010 and 2013. Apparently, Jeff Bridges offered to do it for free. He called the, he called the director, wow. the original director out of the blue and said, or co-director Jules Bass and said, Hey, if you want to do this, I'll do this for free. And, I think uh, he's a little too old to play Prince Lear now, though. <laughs> well, maybe he, maybe he's thinking he would be King Haggard, though. King Haggard seems mm -hmm. like, yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of like the Tron. He started out as the hero and became the villain. I don't, oh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and, but, and, and Mia Farrow, and Mia Farrow could be, uh, Molly. Well, Angela Lansbury, they're, they were in 2013, they were talking about doing a live action version and having her be in it as well. I don't, was she, which character was she? Was she the one I'm thinking of? The, she, no, she was the witch. Oh, she, she was the witch. witch. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, she's they're talking. They were trying to get her and and Christopher, Sir Christopher Lee, involved with it as well. So, and Michael Sarah has to play Schmendrick. I mean, come <laughs> on. oh yeah, oh brilliant. 
Yeah, I don't know how I feel about a live action version. I'll have to think about that. I mean, it would be cool for them to yeah. do some. I, I kind of wish what they would do is um, because the the animation in this is a little janky. Like you can tell it didn't have the hugest animation budget, and I kind of wish they would do just kind of like a um, like a special edition or kind of kind of thing where they would just like inter you know fill in some of the just make the animate smooth out the animation and. See, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was it was lovely to look at. Of all the movies, I thought it was gorgeous, the most gorgeous. It was, but the, I see Dave's point. I mean, they could have George Lucas come in and maybe put like robots flying through the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> little, little Han, Han shooting flies. first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I think the visual design is unbelievably gorgeous. Like any like frame from this just looks like a painting. It's just like the number of animation frames for some of the things, you know. It's not up to like Disney or like whatever, you know. But no, but I, but but this is more like, um, it's it's like a oh god, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not as Disney is very Disney. Like you always know a Disney movie. This is more interpretive. I think maybe it's not the word I'm looking for, but something like that. Um, impressionistic. Impressionistic. Yeah. Exactly. All right, cool. So, yeah, and if anyone uh, listening to this can tell me whether Prince Lear writes a lot of more stuff in the book, uh, <laughs> let us know. Okay. Yeah, and I agree, Andrea. There should be a scene where they should redo it so Schmendrick sh- shoots first. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Make it into a trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Blow up a that, that would be and Peter. Should, they should knock over. They should fight the Red Bull at the end of every one, every installment of the trilogy. <laughs> Yeah, just like the Death Star. The Red Bull is even bigger, (laughs) and they they should all drink Red Bull. We've got a whole Red Stampede this time. (laughs) A Red Herd. (laughs) There's like a there's a herd of a thousand Red Bulls that you never heard of before. They were on like a secret (laughs) mist shrouded planet, and they just showed up for this uh, this third third movie. Um, All right, so I think we should. uh, I think we need to wrap this up there. or actually, I don't know. Any any final thoughts uh, about any of these about this phenomenon of animated eighties movies? That uh, any overall impressions, Andrea? Um, just that I'm uh, too much of an old woman to really a- a- appreciate um, children's animation anymore. Like it has to have an edge, like heavy metal or unicorn, uh, last unicorn, for it me to, to for it to be interesting to me now. Um, which is, I think that's why watching those two were, were my favorites, um, because they were, they had deeper themes and at least humor in the case of heavy metal and a deep meaningful theme, um, as last, for the last unicorn. But everything else was just childish and, and somewhat boring I, and, and too many boobies. God, good lord. Yeah. So everyone just make sure you show your kids last unicorn and heavy metal. I think that's the, the takeaway there. Yeah. Definitely heavy metal. <laughs> Um, uh, Matt, any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I think my favorite of the two were actually Flight of Dragons and The Last Unicorn. I, I did, I did enjoy Heavy Metal, um, but it's not a film I want to revisit soon. Like, if I had to sit down, you know, with with like my family's kids or something and watch one of these, I would be like, let's watch The Last Unicorn first, and if not that one, then then the flight of dragons and any of the others I'd be like, no, not appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun to revisit this and pretend like I was 10 again. Hey Dave, I actually have a question for you. Yep. Why didn't you take, uh, why didn't you go for, uh, the rats of Nim, the secret of Nim? 
Uh, well, because I want it to be more like fantasy sword and sorcery kind of movies. I mean, pretty much any and like there's like if you're if it's just like animated fantasy movies, just broadly like there's like that's like a million movies. So I was trying to do the most core kind of genre ones. I mean, I love the Secret of Nim movie. I love that movie. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Maybe we can do maybe animal movies. Some animal I, movies. I feel there, there was also- there is magic in that one. It wasn't in the book, but in the movie, they actually employed some magic in it yeah i just it just feels like a separate category it was the same thing with like the hob you, you could say like why don't we talk about the hobbit yeah. or the lord of the rings it's kind of like eh, well, they- i figured those because those were the 70s i guess that's true but they're all they also kind of feel like their own sort of category to me yeah i actually have all of those on dvd just requirement <laughs> all right cool um <laughs> i guess i'll just say like i read ralph, ralph bakshi has a, an amazing biography uh so you know if you're bored uh Go read Ralph Bakshi's um, biography or Wikipedia page because there's like a lot of crazy stuff on there. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so Tom, any final thoughts? Uh, you could pretty much just clone Andrea's response and possibly cut out what she said about boobies at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do agree with Matt that you know this. Yeah, if you're showing it to your kids, Flight of Dragons and Last Unicorn, and not not the other ones for sure. Um, if I was going to show any of these to my kids, it would probably be Fr- Flight of Dragons. And if you're going to watch Flight of Dragons, don't watch it. Just put it, use the audio and put it in your head. You don't even have to see it. You can just kind of listen to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, Andrea, one final point about the hot, you, you mm-hmm. mentioned the Hobbit version. I loved that. I only saw that loved once. Loved it. But I, but I had a big, um, a, a large, like coffee table book sized. I have that. Copy. You have that? No way. I yes. That, I sure that. do. That was the first fantasy the I big ever came one. across. It's like like it's like it's like you know like twelve by twelve square, and it's got yes. like a cellophane cover with the dragon. And it has mm-hmm. the inside. Yeah. The artwork is a is like is like inside of like a, a frame that's shaped like an old yep. TV. It's kind of like ovalized, like the, the edges, the corners are kind of rounded off, and it has some of the best artwork. And I read that was. I came Amazing. across The Hobbit in fourth grade for the first time. Our My teacher of our Catholic school read us the uh, Riddles in the Dark chapter. And mm. I was like, what the heck is that? I got to figure that out. And my mom that summer bought me that version. And I read that so many times, all the pages fell out. I wish I still had <laughs> yeah. that. I, I'm reading it to my yep. kid right now. And I wish I had it to be able to I have, show I have, pictures. I have my original Hobbit book that's falling apart. The cover's missing. Um, yeah, I have all my original Lord of the Rings books too, all a mess, like held together by tape. I also, also have the Rankin Bass Hobbit album with the art inside. Um, oh, like the, like the, yeah. like where they read it out loud, you mean? The whole thing is read? Like it's, it's, it's like a Disney, you know that, the, do you remember the Disney albums that they used to put out? Like it was half, um, uh, narrated and then half the, the dialogue from the movie. Okay, That's yeah. what I have. So it's cool. like partially narrated and then partially parts of the movie. I, I, ha- I had an that album. too. I, I, I think I had a, a breakdown in, in a store. I was really young and I saw that Hobbit book and I wanted it so badly. And my father's like, no, you have to read the actual text. This is not a, pr-, you know, you, you, don't, you have to read the book, not, not this picture book crap. And I was like, no, I want it, daddy. And I like, I remember having a breakdown and they finally bought it for me. And I like, I love this you. book to death. I loved it to death, but then I felt really guilty about it afterwards. Uh, but, I'm yeah, glad you yeah. got it. I, I still, when I'm yeah. reading, when I'm reading it to my kids, I, I lately, Every night I've been reading a little bit, and I picture like we're at the part where the dwarves are in the horde, and I picture 
vividly the part where Bilbo is standing on the hoard of gold and I you know there's a there's another one where it just shows the smog's eye opening up with like mm-hmm. a ray of light coming out of it and mm-hmm. I can pick I those are all burned into my brain. Yeah. yeah. All right, we got to we got to start wrapping this up. So um yeah, but definitely everyone watch Last Unicorn if you haven't seen it, show it to your kids, show them uh Flight of Dragons if you want them to get interested in science. And I don't know, I liked Fire and Ice. Um you know, heavy metal maybe check it out. Um, sounds like no particular reason to watch the Black Cauldron, uh, <laughs> unless you want to see the film that almost killed Disney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but all right, so let's uh let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Andrea Kale, Tom Grenzer, and Matthew Kressel. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having us. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrea Kale, Tom Grenzer, and Matthew Kressel for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.